Welcome to Props and Hops. I'm your host, Matt Landis, here today with a rare solo episode. Figured it's the week after the Super Bowl, probably time to give some very generous guests some time to take a break, recharge, and do a little solo NFL betting autopsy. I'll be looking back at lessons learned from the Super Bowl, as well as this past season as a whole, really digging into what we can apply moving forward as betters. And I'll dig into this through the lens of a lot of the Super Bowl Shuffle interview series questions that I've been asking others over the course of these past couple weeks, this time turning the tables and answering a lot of these questions myself. So let's dig in. First question, biggest lesson learned this season from a betting perspective. And this might not surprise regular listeners. I bet a lot of teasers over the course of the season, pretty punishing early on, and it got a lot better as the season progressed. And I think that's probably my biggest takeaway is that teasers are more efficient later in the season. There's kind of a progression to how we should consider betting teasers over the course of an NFL campaign. Early on, we don't have the biggest sample size to inform how good a team truly is. In fact, even after a Super Bowl, we don't have enough games to really have the highest degree of confidence into how good any one team is. So I think that when it comes to teasers moving forward, I've talked in the past about having, you know, four, five, six betting size, more or less flat betting, eight tenths of a unit, one unit or 1.2 units based on degree of confidence. And I see a nice symmetry there between that four, five, six staking model and let's say first third, middle third, final third of a season. And with teasers, a standard bet in that first third, probably going to be a reduced play, eight tenths of a unit. The middle third of the season, one unit can be the standard play. And the final third of the season, 1.2 units can be a standard play. And I don't want to box things in too much or make this too robotic. If I see a Wong teaser leg early on in the season, and I'm not sure just how much I like it because maybe we have a two and a half point underdog, but that line is shaded toward the three, in which case if we see a plus three, that's better than a team in a teaser if they might not be truly crossing through the three I might just let that one go early on in the season. Or if there's a classic Wong teaser leg, but the total is really high, implying a lot of variance. Maybe I'm just going to pass more than I did this past season. And then later in the season, just because a standard play would be 1.2 units. If there's another case where I'm, I'm wavering based on the point spread or a high total, maybe not reducing variance as much as I'd like. Where I'd pass the first third of the season, maybe I'd still play it, but instead of 1.2 units, perhaps one unit or eight tenths of a unit. The general point here being that teasers over the course of a season do tend to become more efficient. And I'm not just being results driven based on this season. I think that aligns with a lot of what I heard as I had conversations with professional bettors and others who have a lot of really good experience, whose opinions I highly respect as this past season progressed. Another question I asked a lot of guests, biggest thing you thought you knew entering the season that you had to rethink over the course of the season. And for myself, a lot of this boils down to market efficiency. I have been the first to admit I'm not a pro better. I'll probably never be a pro better. And I've had some good success over the past decade. Plus trusting market efficiency as a crutch when I myself am in doubt. If I see sharp books shaded one way, a recreational shop shaded the other way. I should probably bet into that recreational shops number and just trust that the market making books are correct. And I didn't fully invalidate that opinion over the course of the season, but I think I did start to realize that just blindly putting too much faith in market efficiency can be a pretty dangerous game. And that's especially the case when it comes to scenarios with any injury concerns. I think 
more than anything, I learned that somebody playing in a game is very much not the same thing necessarily as that same player going at 100%. And in the last interview of this podcast, talking to G Stack George, he talked about manufacturing CLV when it comes to injury uncertainty. That really resonated with me because I lost track this season of how many times we were pretty much let's say 95% sure that a given player was in or out for a game. Yet when certain news was made official and we were a hundred percent sure there was a pretty major market reaction when in reality, again, that 95% probability before news was made official was probably already priced into a point spread. So I think that moving forward with injury uncertainty, there's definitely more to consider there. The market, if there are injury concerns about a quarterback, probably not as efficient, especially early in the week as I previously would have thought. And I know that sometimes the market can be quick to correct itself if any inefficiencies get exploited or major news does come out unexpectedly. And especially if you're not a pro better, you're not like Hitman watching the screen all the time, pouncing on news the second it's available. It's not always easy to get the best of a number when we're talking about injury uncertainty. But I do think that if you're not the quickest person in the world to the number and, and you know, you can't pull the trigger right away, it doesn't mean that your options are eliminated as soon as a full game point spread moves. Because thinking downstream beyond the next game point spread involving any player with a major injury, we can look at things like look ahead lines, division, conference championship, Super Bowl odds or even things like the awards market. When the Jalen Hurts injury news came out late this season, there was a window where, okay, the Eagles are playing the Cowboys that week. That line got steamed. Division, conference, Super Bowl numbers were quick to adjust. But I think one of the biggest lagging markets was the MVP market, where Hurts had been the favorite, and suddenly it was clear that Mahomes needed to be a prohibitive favorite. So sometimes we have longer windows to look at these downstream markets. It's not the end of the world if you don't get the point spread for that player's upcoming game. If we get big news on somebody being in or out, and if you do get down on that upcoming point spread, it doesn't mean the job is done. There's still a much wider attack surface to consider. So that's something that I definitely did some rethinking on as the season progressed. And next I'll go to kind of best and worst, if you will, most tilting moment and most fortunate win of the season. And it, it kind of runs the whole spectrum of the season just about. I think I'll start with my most tilting loss, perhaps a bit of recency bias here, but back to divisional round weekend, Cowboys at the 49ers. I had Debo Samuel over 14 and a half rushing yards and Elijah Mitchell under 37 and a half rushing and receiving yards. And at halftime, this was looking golden. Debo Samuel had already gone over in theory. He had 15 rushing yards at the half. Meanwhile, Elijah Mitchell only had two yards from scrimmage. Unfortunately, in the second half, Debo Samuel gets one more carry. He loses yardage, flipping that win to a loss. And to add injury to insult, Christian McCaffrey gets hurt. He came in for some key third downs, but really wasn't his full self in the second half of that game. And that meant no more of those unique 49ers formations with Debo Samuel in the backfield and McCaffrey split out wide. Essentially, once McCaffrey became hobbled, Elijah Mitchell took over in the backfield and he ended up going over his number 37 and a half yards from scrimmage on that final drive. So that was another loss turning a very likely 2-0 at halftime of that game into a pretty brutal 0-2 by the time all was said and done. I think it's important to keep in mind that when we bet props, once something goes over, you know, there's still a chance. I think there was a game last Thanksgiving where Tony Pollard might have gone 
from over to under. Perhaps it was receiving yards. I, I don't recall the exact number. This was Thanksgiving of 2021, but it happens from time to time. I think there was a Dolphins running back who had something similar happen to his receiving yardage total. Once something goes over, it can still fall back under. So nothing's ever a given. And I think that that just really illustrates the point. But that said, it's not always all bad when we're talking variance. If I think about my most fortunate win of the season, we can rewind all the way to week one of the preseason. And I had the Falcons laying two and a half points at Detroit. And when I first placed the bet, saw a lot of market activity alongside my money, felt pretty good. Then we saw some late money on the Lions, and that was a rough sign. I had no closing line value when this game kicked off. That typically to me is a pretty bad sign in the preseason not to be able to capture any CLV on a point spread. And it pretty much played out that way for most of the game. Fourth quarter, Falcons were down by three. Detroit had the ball with a first down in its own territory. And last play before the two-minute warning, the Falcons were down to one timeout. The Lions are essentially running out the clock. They fumbled a handoff exchange, Falcons recovered, and suddenly I had new life, but the Falcons were still down by three, and I was laying two and a half, so there was plenty of work ahead. Eventually, Atlanta moves down the field a bit, but they had a fourth and nine at the Detroit 21-yard line. A lot of coaches in this spot in the regular season would just run out the kicker, attempt a 39-yard field goal to tie the game. The Falcons end up going for it. Desmond Ritter becomes a whole scramble drill. He extends the play, just throws up a prayer into the end zone, and it gets caught for a touchdown. So the Falcons win and cover that game in miraculous fashion. I did appreciate in the moment just how fortunate that was, but I wish I had appreciated it for much longer given some of the variance that was ahead over the course of the rest of the season. I just don't want to forget that because most recently a tilting moment in the divisional round, you know, that doesn't mean that, oh, these bets that swing with any variance always go against us. No, it's important to remember that sometimes, even if it's a preseason bet, remember the times that things break in your favor as well, because as humans, I think we're just wired to feel the sting of a bad beat twice as much as the fortune of a lucky win. And in reality, these things do tend to even out. It's just tough to remember that the way our brains are wired. So trying to do my best to that extent. Now, I know you didn't tune into this episode for preseason week one thoughts, so I won't belabor the point there. Another question I asked a lot of guests during the Super Bowl Shuffle interview series was about their overall thoughts on the Super Bowl. And in this case, the Super Bowl has come and gone. So instead of looking forward to it, I'll, of course, give a brief recap from my perspective, but I'll try not to beat a dead horse with any old news or points that have just been talk talked about ad nauseum across much of the sports mediaverse in recent days. Ideally here, I'll be able to surface one factor that you're probably not getting anywhere else. And I think it's something that's important for all of us to consider moving forward. Thinking back to the game itself, I think one of the best analogies I heard came on the athletic NFL show, if I recall correctly, comparing this game to one of the best movies ever with an anticlimactic ending. And I know that holding penalty that's been the ire of so many fans. That's been a talking point. Don't want to belabor it. I do want to say that by the letter of the law, all indications tell me that, yes, that did warrant a flag, you could say. But if we talk about the court of public opinion, everybody wants to see the game just play out in that scenario. Unless you're a Chiefs fan, you probably just want that flag to stay in the ref's pocket. The argument goes they could call holding on every play. They let something worse go earlier. Uh, I will say Kevin Cole on his Unexpected Points podcast brought up a good point that, yes, there was a more egregious hold. I think it was also the same two guys. Bradbury holding Juju Smith-Schuster early in the game. 
it's not a guarantee that just because that wasn't called, the refs were trying to tell the players they could do whatever they want defensively and they were going to call a loose game. It might be that refs are human. They don't have the same vantage point on the field in real time that every camera angle can capture. And maybe it's not that they saw the hold early in the game and decided not to call it. They might have just not seen it and they did see what they called later in the game. So when it comes to this dynamic, I think the factor I want to really hammer home is that yeah, there's a lot of an outcry for them not to have thrown that flag and to let them play. But not throwing a flag when you see one is also a very heavy decision. And the biggest example I can think of in recent years takes us back to the infamous pass interference non-call in that Rams-Saints NFC title game in 2019. Of course, you could caveat that was an egregious PI that didn't get called. We're not talking apples to apples with perhaps a ticky-tack flag on James Bradbury at the end of this most recent Super Bowl. But I think the point stands that a non-call is also a substantial decision when we're talking about this. It is a lot more nuanced than simply saying, let them play and don't flag anything. And I see a connection in thinking about all this to a point that came up in the Super Bowl shuffle, Super Bowl shuffle finale last Friday, excuse me, with G-Stack George talking about the psychology of betting. I, I had a thought about the psychology of being human. And there's one of my favorite books I've mentioned on the show over the years, Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. I think it's in that book that she made the point that all else equal acts of commission, in this case, it could be throwing a flag, would get judged more harshly than acts of omission, let's say not throwing a flag. So, you know, all else equal, court of public opinion, maybe don't do it. It doesn't mean that throwing the flag was a terrible thing or the Eagles got robbed in any way. To wrap up thoughts on the game as a whole, I, I think that James Bradbury deserves credit for admitting after the game that, yeah, it was holding and he hoped it would go uncalled, but it did. And Nick Sirianni, I think, was very professional, reinforcing the point that one call, one play doesn't determine the outcome of a game. So I, I was really pleasantly surprised by the way that the Eagles handled everything, given how devastating that must have been. And also want to make sure not to take any credit away from the Chiefs. Yes, it was an anticlimactic ending. That's not their fault, and they are a worthy champion to cap off this season. Now, from a betting perspective, heading into the Super Bowl, I had talked to some guests on this show about having a 14-to-1 futures bet on the Chiefs and not hedging, and the process there was really simple on my end. It wasn't life-changing money at stake, and I didn't see any standalone value betting on Philadelphia, so while it was a simple process, it wasn't such a clear path to the result that I was hoping for. Thank goodness Kansas City did come through at the end of the day because my props really didn't to a large extent. And as I think about it, there are four primary lessons that I take out of prop betting from this past Super Bowl. The first one would be becoming less precious about what I've considered annual staples in recent years. And one of those would be betting the opening kickoff not to be a touchback. I think that I need to examine whether that's less of a coin toss than I've been thinking. And to be careful about narratives, I might be creating about just how much more teams value field position in the playoffs, just how much adrenaline a return man might have for the start of the Super Bowl. I mean, I don't recall any kickoffs being returned in this Super Bowl. And we had a lot of kickoffs in a 38 to 35 game. Uh, so even in the range of plus 140, at times I think this got as high as plus 170 early on doesn't necessarily mean there's value this day and age in the NFL and betting the opening kickoff not to be a touchback. 
And at the same time, I, I will consider this prior to next year's Super Bowl. I don't want to say, hey, just because two years in a row, the opening kickoff has gone for a touchback means that it's something to abandon forever. So more thought required there, just not going to blindly assume moving forward that, hey, it's been a good annual staple over the years. So let's always bet it at plus money. It's a bit more complicated than that. So I will certainly take that into consideration. Another prop that I'll consider something along the lines of no score in the first six minutes. A lot of books that might be offering first five minutes, 30 seconds, or the first six minutes, 30 seconds. Uh, this aligns a lot with the concept of the second half to be the higher scoring half. And the angle there was that we've seen slow starts in so many Super Bowls. That definitely wasn't the case this time around. And I think a common thread is to evaluate not just Super Bowls. There's an inherently small sample size there. And, and not to narrow the sample size even farther, but to really dig for some signal here. A lot of those Super Bowls where we saw opening kickoffs not going for touchbacks or teams not scoring in the first six minutes or the second half outscoring the first half, common thread there was largely the Patriots under Bill Belichick. He, with Stephen Gutkowski, would often force a kick return and pin opponents deep. Now, beyond the opening kickoff, that was a huge factor in the 28-3 comeback New England had. I know it's easy to point out areas where the Falcons fell short, but it seemed like as the Patriots mounted that comeback, Every time they kicked off, they were pinning Atlanta deep and maybe other teams don't value field position or practice their kickoffs often enough to adopt that same approach. And in a lot of these New England Super Bowls under Belichick, we saw slow starts for whatever reason. I mean, with Tom Brady, you'd think that there wouldn't be big game nerves by the time he's in his sixth, seventh Super Bowl, whatever it was. Um, I, I just think that while we saw some slow starts with those Patriots teams, that doesn't mean that slow starts or kickoffs not being touchbacks would be so applicable to a lot of Super Bowl teams that we're going to see moving forward. Lesson number two, anticipate variance on props based on game management. Hitman was pretty spot on when he cautioned me a little bit against Kansas City being the team that would kick the longest field goal in this game. And it's not because the logic was bad. In fact, that prop would have hit if Harrison Butker's first field goal attempt didn't go off the goalpost. And we'll talk about kickoffs going off of goalposts more in a moment here but that's that kind of variance is on the table with these props kansas city first team to call a timeout another prop that i bet they didn't call a timeout in the first half and and that kind of blew me away in the two minute drill i think they were one more first down away from really getting going trying to go for a score before the half and starting to use their timeouts part of the handicap to this bet was that philadelphia was the smarter team when it comes to game management and I thought the Eagles might take a delay of game instead of wasting a timeout in a certain spot. We did end up seeing that. The Eagles did take a delay of game to preserve a penalty, but it didn't come soon enough to save this prop. So with the Chiefs' longest field goal, Chiefs' first team to call timeout, I think there was a good process there. I got some good closing line value, although it's worth taking CLV with a big grain of salt when we're talking prop bets, much less liquidity and efficiency than a full game point spread market. That said, with these kinds of props, I wouldn't necessarily shy away from betting them again in the future if I saw a clear edge, but I might not bet them as much when it comes to anticipating in-game management just because of the variance of how any one game might unfold. And speaking of variance, for good measure, I feel like I recall the second quarter clock hitting two minutes well before Kansas City snapped the ball before the final play before the two-minute warning. I thought the refs could have and perhaps should have called the two-minute warning right there. I haven't heard this discussed anywhere else, and maybe it's because that final play seemed pretty inconsequential, a short completion to Justin Watson. 
but I'm one of the betters who had Watson under one and a half receptions in the game. That ended up being his first of two receptions. So I laid minus 140 on a bet that closed minus 180. Again, closing line value, but take it with a grain of salt when we're talking prop bets here. I don't know. I'd have to rewatch it. I, I felt like the clock was stuck on two minutes for a while before we went to the warning and, and that Watson catch kind of did me in. But I can also take this as an opportunity just to embrace variance and move on. So let's move on to lesson number three. I'm going to start anticipating the value pretty early on in next year's Super Bowl betting cycle, betting on a boring game. This game was certainly anything but boring. We saw a field goal attempt at a goalpost, a defensive touchdown, almost two defensive touchdowns, multiple fourth down conversions, a two-point conversion, including the octopus by Jalen Hurts scoring a touchdown himself and converting the two-point conversion himself to account for all eight points on that Eagles possession. I mean, I feel like this game had just about everything except for maybe a safety and overtime. Recreational bettors who risk a little to win a lot probably cleaned up in the Super Bowl. And conversely, I think a lot of pro bettors probably took quite a hit. I mean, bets I haven't discussed yet that a lot of pros typically bet that I often consider as well. And I, I did end up betting in this game were no tie after 0-0. Zero, zero at plus money. I mean, we saw this one tied at seven, seven. So uh, that one lost in the first quarter when the chiefs scored to answer the Eagles opening drive. Also the yes on a team to score three unanswered times. There were a few times, I think both teams had scored twice in a row, but we never got to three scores in a row. And that does happen a lot more than people tend to think. It just didn't happen in this game. So next year, I feel like I'll be ready to bet against the chaos that a lot of lottery ticket betters really cashed in on this year assuming we see it play out in the pricing. Again, all these bets come down to the numbers being offered. And I'm going to be paying particularly close attention to that prop bet of a point after attempt or field goal not hitting the goal post. The no on that almost always has value. Again, I know it lost and it was a pretty big loss this year to those who bet the no because it was priced in the range of minus 570 on game day. I think the true probability... Mm, not not even not even high enough big if we're talking minus 570 there and next year we might see this price closer to laying five to one when again that true probability could be closer to 10 to one so people who cashed in on that prop this year probably going to be betting it again next year people who didn't bet it this year might have some fomo again if if 570 on game day this year turns into I don't know, minus 470 might be dreaming, but but anything closer to even laying five to one, that's probably value to go ahead and pull the trigger and just let the true probability do its thing. Lesson number four for me, really try to focus on leaning into what works and filtering out as much of the other noise as possible. One thing that has worked for me in a lot of Super Bowl betting markets over the years is fading recency bias. And my poster child for that in this game was Marquez Valdez-Scantling. I took MVS under 38 and a half receiving yards on game day. And the biggest reason I took it isn't because I, I thought that his AFC championship game performance was some crazy fluke or he's not a good player. It's just that that number marked an 11 yard adjustment from where he closed for the AFC title game. And, and that is a massive adjustment looking from one game to the next. In fact, I was fortunate to join the unabated super stream the night before the Super Bowl. And at the time, MVS was lined at 35 and a half receiving yards. So my prop bet for that show was MVS under 35 and a half. Felt really good to see him post a big fat zero in the box score. So maybe Captain Jack will welcome me back on his super stream next year. Um, regardless of the way that one bet played out, this was one of the few props that was an easy ride to victory. 
I think that fading recency bias in Super Bowl betting markets, especially when public money can have such a big impact, are really something I will continue to look to do moving forward. Another factor leading into the angle of leaning into what works would be a parallel to a full season takeaway. I touched earlier on players playing in a game, very much not meaning that they're playing at 100% in all cases. And specifically in Super Bowls, I'll look to fade players who are suiting up when we can pretty safely assume that they would be out if the game weren't the Super Bowl. I know Kadarius Tony made a couple game-changing plays in the Super Bowl. The big punt return, he also scored a touchdown. But he was almost invisible for every other play of this game. And I wish I would have questioned Hitman a bit with his bullishness on Tony to go over. I'm sure Hitman had very good reasoning for it. But I can't help but think, you know, Tony's injury status going into this game. I think of a guy like CJ Uzama going into last year's Super Bowl. Or in 2020, that guy was Tevin Coleman. 2019, Todd Gurley was a great fade throughout the playoffs and the Rams run up to their Super Bowl loss to the Patriots. So almost every year, there's somebody like this who wouldn't be playing if this weren't the Super Bowl. And a lot of the prop numbers just price in season long averages. And if they've done anything noteworthy recently, they might even see their season long averages inflated when clearly diminished health could really hinder them on game day. One more point. Uh, talking about this lesson of leading into what works. Don't relax too soon on Super Sunday. Some sports books keep bets up during or after the coin toss that shouldn't be there anymore. And I know it's a tricky dynamic because on Super Sunday, books probably just want to take all the handle they can get until the moment the game kicks off. But when the coin toss has happened and things like first team to score, first quarter spread and money line, third quarter spread and money line are still posted there's an opportunity to capture a lot of value. And the way that I found some success doing this is to actually go out to my car, leave the TV for a few minutes, listen to the coin toss via radio to get as close as possible to real time and having bet slips queued up on one window this year. I had it queued up. Uh, if the chiefs received the opening kickoff, then Kansas city to score first Kansas city in the first quarter, Philadelphia in the third quarter, another window I had bets queued up according to Philadelphia receiving the opening kickoff. So as soon as Kansas City deferred, had that Eagles window ready, bet Philly to score first. First quarter money line ended up pushing. Third quarter Kansas City money line also cashed. And these are bets that you've got to submit within seconds, if that, because while books leave these up longer than they should, they don't leave them up too long. And I will note that it's important to be careful here. This is a really good way to get banned if you get too greedy and bet way more than you typically do. But I do think that if you try to be stealth enough with it, it's a good way to add icing to the, you know, icing on the cake of your Super Bowl prop betting portfolio, as long as you can just hustle a little bit and be attentive. So overall, Super Bowl betting thoughts, again, looking back, there were bets that I need to hold myself accountable for having a poor process this year, getting perhaps too precious with some of my annual staples, and I can loosen my grasp on those a little bit moving forward. And there were some bets where I think the process was sound and I saw some pretty poor results. That's just the way it goes sometimes when we're talking about one game. Looking forward, I think that there could be a lot of potential value next year against recreational betters who won big this season. So again, props like will a point after attempt or a field goal attempt hit an upright or the crossbar if we're seeing anything less than six to one and perhaps closer to five to one after the yes betters cash this year, the no could have even more value than usual next season. And biggest picture takeaway, when in doubt, even though it's the Super Bowl, just play the clear edges, pass on the rest. 
Um, I think that I got a little bit too attached to the notion of telling people, oh, I might have upwards of 30 props in this game. I, I know pros might have, you know, 100 or more props. So 30 isn't as many as a lot of you might have had. But to the casual fan, like, you know, two dozen plus prop bets, that sounds like a lot. It's not necessarily a badge of honor if those aren't all good bets. And I think that our biggest edge is betters. It's important to remember, even as exciting as the Super Bowl can be, is that we get to pick our spots. The books have to post so many numbers. And in the Super Bowl market, because there is such a big attack surface, we can often bet many more things in that one game than we would for a typical game. But there's no need to force the issue and bet a ton just because it's the Super Bowl. All right, shifting gears a bit, another two-part question I asked a lot of guests during the Super Bowl interview series was for a betting content low light and highlight over the course of the season. Thinking about the betting content landscape, what do we want to see less of and more of moving forward? And I'll be pretty quick with my low light. I think the refund entitlement trend was really aggravating on all fronts. I think all parties are guilty here. People who think they're entitled to a refund because they bet somebody over and he got injured. Hey, guess what? Betting involves risk and injury is on the table to sports books who pay out the betters who are crying for a refund. I think you're just priming a certain type of behavior that, that really to me is toxic and doesn't have any place in the space. So betters, bookmakers, whichever side of the counter you want to look on. I, I think there's plenty to question there. Injuries are part of the deal in all of this. If you bet somebody over and they get hurt on the first play of the game, you are not entitled to a refund. I'll leave it at that. I want to get to the highlight to me. Um, and, and there were a few here. And I, I want to try to think positive with the season, you know, just getting put in the books on a personal level, getting to do this show with Suma and Hitman every week of the season was a dream come true. Suma is world-class when it comes to reading the market. Hitman is world-class when it comes to prop betting and getting to dig into those topics with both of them, just really dialing in on the peak of expertise in this space I just couldn't have imagined having been so fortunate when I started this show. So was so happy to work with Suma and Hitman over the course of this season. And on a personal level, it was also validating to get what I think of in my head is inbound outreach, if you will. I had done so much outreach the last couple of years, just trying to get other people to come on to this show. And I'll continue to do it and get the best guests I can. I've been blown away by how generous people have been with their time and insight and it was awesome to get to return the favor a little bit when it came to recurring segments on VEASAN every Monday night on the Greg Peterson experience, doing a roundtable with Ben Brown of Pro Football Focus. A lot of Thursday mornings over the second half of the season, getting to connect with Professor Nick Harrison on ESPN New Orleans. And I don't really have any ties to New Orleans, but he has a fun show and asks good questions and had a blast connecting with him a lot over the course of the year. And it was also great to get to you know, get away from hosting duties and be a guest on shows like the football analytics show by Ed Fang, the Monday grind podcast by G stack, George, always betting with the Banfield group, the odds breakers with Kev O'Neill also did a fun interview with Chris Farley. Uh, my good friend, Chris Harris in real life. He's a good friend. We hang out in LA quite often going on the Harris fantasy football podcast to do a betting breakdown leading up to the super bowl was a surreal opportunity as was joining the aforementioned super stream with Captain Jack Andrews and the unabated team. It was just really cool that people, you know, kind of cared about what I thought. And I, I hope that I could add value to other people's processes on platforms beyond props and hops, looking for a way to definitely pay it forward after a couple years of it being 
a pretty one-way street with me just bringing other people onto this show. Glad that we were able to kind of cross-pollinate a little bit and uh, and really make it more of a two-way street. Getting out of personal highlights, I want to also recommend a few podcasts that odds are you listen to if you listen to this show. But if not, I think they're worth adding to the rotation. First up would be Monday Grind with G-Stack George. He does a lot of great evergreen interviews with some of the smartest, most fascinating people in the space. And I similarly like the Take the Points podcast, kind of like the Monday Grind. These aren't pick shows, but Take the Points, also really good analytical information that you can you can learn a lot and apply it to your betting process. They did talk about certain betting picks over the course of the year, but really I think the way that Tej Seth and Arjun Menon is co-host, they are so young and so freaking smart. They have ridiculously bright futures. I can't believe they're students at the University of Michigan and have already accomplished what they have. Um, the Take the Points podcast, really a bright spot when it comes to new shows across this space over the course of this past year. And a show that wasn't new this year, but I think just retains its spot atop the, atop the perch matchbook NFL betting show for my money, the most actionable NFL podcast or YouTube show you're going to find anywhere. I also think that beyond podcasts, something that I'll, I'll keep bugging Las Vegas, Chris, about releasing in podcast form. Uh, but on his YouTube channel, he did great videos with his partner, Ron. There is just a wealth of experience and knowledge between Las Vegas, Chris and Ron, and they share some unique insights. I really think that their content is as candid as anything that you're going to find out there. So a really engaging listen that will only make you a better, better and reward you for the time you put into watching that. And you can watch it via Las Vegas, Chris's YouTube channel. All right, we're nearing the home stretch here. Another question I asked a lot of guests was from a lifestyle perspective for Super Sunday, weaving in the hops. What did they have queued up any go-to food or drinks for game day? Again, Super Sunday has come and gone, but to weave in the hops here, I want to highlight something that is really fun across much of California right now. Plenty the Younger. This is a West Coast triple IPA released once a year. It clocks in at 10.25% ABV, and it comes to us courtesy of Russian River Brewing Company out of Santa Rosa, California. Now, this beer is an annual rite of passage. It's released at a lot of the best beer bars across California. I think it's something to look forward to every year just after the Super Bowl. And I did get the chance to have my annual pour of it yesterday at Tony's Darts Away, a great craft beer bar in Burbank, California. I kind of consider it an annual passing of the torch from the props to the hops. And I know that Plenty of the Younger, beyond distribution at limited craft beer bars in California, it's a bucket list pilgrimage for a lot of craft beer geeks to get up to Russian Rivers locations in Santa Rosa, or they also have a new really beautiful tasting room in Windsor, California. And, and people love to get there and they do bottle releases so you can take it to go and not just have one pour on draft. So that's something I definitely like to do someday, but you know, I'll, I'll take a draft pour at a good neighborhood bar any day, even if I can't take a bottle to go. And if you're unfamiliar with this beer, it's got a nice medium body. It is Bursting with hop aroma and flavor. Classic West Coast IPA profile of citrus and pine. I also got some floral notes in this year's batch. And, and I'll just wrap it up by saying that Plenty of the Younger is remarkably balanced and smooth for a double-digit ABV. Moving on from the hops, uh, final topic to touch on here. Most anticipated things of this offseason. Um, I'll say in a word, space. I think that when it comes to weeknights after work, having a full-time day job and trying to juggle this show, it's a labor of love. And I 
am so glad that I am in a spot where I can do it. But instead of going twice a week or even daily for the past couple of weeks leading up to the Super Bowl, just dialing it back to a weekly cadence for the show once a week and freeing up a lot more time to spend with my wife. She is my favorite person, and I feel like I don't always back up those words with my time allocation during the season. And whether it's just watching a movie or a sitcom, you know, anything and everything. I think of the saying that time you enjoy wasting isn't wasted time. And, and to me, you know, any time with her is quality time. And I'm really excited to, in short order, really ramp up how much of that we can do even during the week after a long day of work. And on weekends, her favorite place is the beach. We're lucky in Southern California. It's pretty much a year-round destination. We'll definitely take advantage of it throughout the summer once that arrives. And without even leaving the house, we've got a hammock that I talked about before we had one. I had grandparents growing up that had a hammock, and I just loved it. And I always thought, oh, one day I want to have a house. I want to have a hammock. And I'm fortunate to be in a spot where I do own a house. I do have a hammock. I can't tell you the last time I got in it. And... I also can't tell you the last time I put in some, you know, substantial time reading a book. I have so many good books at the house, so many more on my reading list. And I think the smartest people who I respect the most, a lot of the most successful people I know are really diligent in their reading habits. So having the space to do more of that, just relax on the hammock, open a good book, um, or even more socially spend time with family and friends. A, a lot of weekends during the NFL season, turn the living room into a command center and I'm watching games on the TV and on the laptop and on the iPad and taking notes and thinking about a visa appearance or a podcast outline. And it's so worthwhile. I really enjoy it, but I'd be lying to say, I don't also enjoy the change of pace when football season ends. I am not having any withdrawals right now. I can guarantee that. And part of that might also be because it's been a while since I really got to do any travel. And one week from this Sunday, my wife and I will be running the rock and roll half marathon on the Las Vegas strip at night. It is such a spectacle. We're not doing it for our best time. We're just doing it to get out there. Certainly an active way to vacation in Vegas, but a nice, easy pace and just taking the scenery that you're not going to get. I think we can safely say any other run or organized, you know, athletic event pretty much anywhere in the world. And then less than one week from that half marathon in Vegas, we're going to see Bruce Springsteen in Denver. And that has been a bucket list item for me for years. I'll be thinking about David Malinsky early and often. I know that he really admired Bruce, not just for his music catalog, but for how Bruce did a lot of his you know, best work in life or, or grew so much as a person after the age of 60. Um, I think if Dave had made it into his 60s, we would have seen the same thing from him. So I'll, I'll really be thinking about Dave uh, early and often throughout that Bruce Springsteen concert and can't wait to check that off the bucket list with a fun short and sweet trip to Denver to take that in. Also in May uh, with some travel, it'll be nice to see some in-laws in New York again, spending Memorial day weekend at an extended family summer house in Delaware, never done that. So it'll be fun to get a first time experience along those lines. And again, I know when we're talking about the NFL season, it's important to make hay while the sun shines. And I embrace that. I bring it on myself, but in the off season, I think there's so much else in life to enjoy. Again, I can't say that I'm experiencing any football withdrawals right now, although I may have a different sentiment come June or July as the season's getting closer and we're well past the draft as well. So to tie a bow around this, I think that I want to acknowledge for myself and, and anybody who's listening with whom this would resonate, relaxation is also a skill and it's definitely one that I need to build. 
So on that note, I'll get ready to go relax and spend some quality time with my favorite person. Go ahead and wrap up this episode with a quick programming reminder. Again, this offseason, we will have weekly episodes of Props and Hops. Pretty soon, it's going to be a pivot to the NFL draft. And from a non-football standpoint, major events like March Madness, MLB opening day, NBA and NHL playoffs, major events in other sports. I'll keep all of that in mind and look to cover those where it makes sense. And also not forget about the hops. I think it's a good time to get in some good interviews with some of the most interesting people in the symbiotic worlds of betting and beer. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Hope this solo interview wasn't too monotonous. I'll see you again next week with a special guest right here on Props and Hops. Props and hops and